We're going back to the Bible, this time examining one of the most courageous women in the Old Testament and her battle to save the Jewish people. Join us as we discuss the book of Esther. Let's go. Welcome to Wadi Cherith, the podcast where we turn the tables on our enemies and then bring them to swift and ruthless justice. I'm Father Alex Roach, and joining me as always is Father Anthony Dill. How you doing? I'm doing really well, because I love swift and ruthless justice. <laughs> when have you enacted swift and ruthless justice? Well, I, I mean, my concept of justice is not near what God's concept of justice. So I've attempted in a lot of ways to enact it, but I am usually probably just doing my own personal vendettas and hurting people needlessly. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Quite the confession. Oh, Hey, that's part of the Catholic life. It's being yeah. aware, just being aware of yourself, being aware of your own weaknesses to vendetta justice. <laughs> Is it strength or weakness? No, it's definitely weakness in the Christian life. That's a weakness. Vendettas are weakness. Oh, yeah. But I, I use that uh, image for our opening because we're talking about the book of Esther, which ends with some swift and ruthless justice. In fact, it sure does. Yeah. I got a, I got a nice story for you before we start. I was in um, our religious ed classes this this weekend and in the sixth grade class they were making like art projects to describe they're going through the different big stories in the old testament and they could uh they were in groups and they could like use all kinds of different materials to display something so there were some pretty cool ones that that people made of different biblical stories and one of them was of so they did like 10 commandments a big different stories but since we did a podcast on noah they did one on the ark but they um depicted inside the ark every animal that was in the ark was an aquatic animal so it was like alligators and dolphins and sharks (laughs) uh aquarium it was an aquarium inside the ark inside of a flood and like there were no dry land animals so like somehow one it's like I've never even conceptualized that because if you're taking the Bible literally, then they would have had to put two of each animal in there, including aquatic animals, um, which wouldn't need saved because they live in the water and the whole earth is water. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) But two, it's just like they missed the point somehow. Like they understood there was water happening, but that it was saving this like root of the population of all of creation. It's as if it was a drought. <laughs> yeah, like a ship to... laying on a desert island full of water. It's polar it... bears. It was so many great, incredible, like unique aquatic animals all in the ark. Have you considered that if you wanted to save things that swim, a boat isn't your best option? <laughs> yeah. These people are just, uh, yeah, it's so, they think so differently. You're thinking of children, is what you're saying. You think yeah, exactly. this is a surprising thing? No, it was a sixth grade. It wasn't like, oh, okay. like five-year-olds. <laughs> it was well-drawn. They all had their own rooms inside of this ark, this giant ark that they created. 
out of construction paper and different materials. I don't know if an, I think an alligator's fair game. I don't know if they could how long they can. Yeah. They, I mean, I assume they have at some points need to. Are they resting on land? Yeah, they rest on land, right? Uh, yeah, probably. You'd have to put alligators on there. Yeah, you could make like a little r- raft off the back that the alligators couldn't just float with you and rest. They could just on hang on there. They don't need a room. And the crocodiles, <laughs> and the crocodiles, and and amphibians, I guess. Yeah. So is this like of all the different things people kind of joke about the the flood about or the ark about? That one, as far as like a fundamentalist who takes the Bible literally, that is a funny critique. Like, well, they put it says they put two of each animal in, so they must have built an aquarium. There had to be fish in there. Yeah. Well, you may have uh, throughout your education as a Catholic spent a lot of time talking about people like Noah, uh, very famous. Um, Moses, obviously a big figure in the Old Testament, and even King David. Uh, But one area where there may be fewer characters, at least that capture the popular imagination, but is very important in the history of Israel is the exile. Uh, Do you want to talk to us a little bit about what the exile is? Because it's very important as we begin our discussion of the book of Esther. Yeah, it's important because of how it affected and made the Jewish people understand how to live their faith. This is a period, there's, there's two exiles. One is the 8th century BC and one is the 6th century BC, but the main exile is the 6th century BC. So the temple had been built for like 300, 400 years, 400 years, and they were offering worship there. There was a stability. They're following all their laws, the Jewish people, or they were the Israelites. And then in 587, 586, the Babylonian empire came and absolutely destroyed the city of Jerusalem. And they took the temple, which is necessary for worship, and burned it to the ground. And then they enslaved a lot of the people, especially the the people who were more competent at, at running things. In the book of Daniel, you have Daniel and his friends who end up working in the royal court for Babylon. So this this period of the exile is important because it is a Jewish faith with all these established things. And then all of a sudden, they're exported to Babylon, which is in Iraq. And then eventually in uh, the 30s, 530s. Not the, the 1930s. Per, the, not the 1930s, the 530s, and not the, even the 530s AD, 530s BC. Yeah. So after only a couple decades, they are freed because the Persian Empire destroys the Babylonian Empire. So then our story today takes place in the Persian Empire, which is in Iran, north of the Persian Gulf. And so, it's, so it's right after the exile ends, but it's still Jewish people living outside of Israel. So that's why this concept of the exile, which is very important as you read all the prophets, right? The prophets are generally talking about this exile either before, during, or after. Uh, but it's it's very crucial to what's going on in the book of Esther as they try to figure out how to live their faith in a non-Jewish place amongst non-Jewish people. And the, and the spirituality when they're home is like, we want to find this, rhythm and control and fine tune things. And the spirituality in exile as as we'll kind of talk about is there's a lot more creativity involved. So one of the places this is significant, this figuring out 
how to live your faith in a foreign land. One of the places we, we see this having an influence is in the version of this story that we use. That might sound strange to you, like, oh, the Bible's the Bible. But in fact, you might notice that Protestants and certainly Jewish people use different books of the Old Testament. And that's because there were various translations that people found these stories. Uh, as Catholics, we come up with our list for books in the Old Testament from something called the Septuagint, which was an ancient translation of the Hebrew scriptures into Greek, which was the dominant world language for a lot of history. So this might answer some of the questions you have about why our Bible is different than other people's Bible. And, and the idea is that it seems like St. Paul and the, the Gospels, when they're quoting the Old Testament, are quoting this Greek version of it, the Septuagint. Now, the book of Esther fits into this in a unique way because most of it we have in the Hebrew translation, but there are sections within it that come from the Greek version that are not in Hebrew, only in Greek. So if you're looking at your Bible, you might notice that maybe there are extra parts of the book of Esther at the end. Maybe there's parts that have weird numbering or are indicated with letters. That's because those parts come from the Greek version and are not in the Hebrew version. I remember the first time I was trying to read the book of Esther and uh, like years ago before I had any studying at all, I was just reading through the Bible and I did not understand the A and the B and italics and not italics and uh, that the numbers are out of order as well. And now in some of the books of the Bible, this is kind of a, a marginal difference that doesn't make a huge difference when you're reading it. But for Esther, this distinction is very important. Because the Greek portions of Esther are very different than the Hebrew versions. What's the big difference? The big difference is that in the Greek version, there's this attempt to shoehorn in the word for God and also prayers that Mordecai and Esther say and have like this overall theological interpretation and understanding of the book of Esther. Whereas the Hebrew version doesn't mention God explicitly once, and the the characters aren't praying explicitly. They're fasting and they're they're relying on providence and understanding providence. You can kind of see in the background, but there's no explicit Jewish language being used. And just in case you didn't pick that up, we have a book of the Bible that in the Hebrew does not <laughs> once reference God. It's in the Bible. It's part of our tradition. Uh, Protestants have this book. Jewish people have this book. But in the Hebrew, this book does not seem to be theological at all, at least explicitly. Does not mention the name of God once. Which brings us back to our theme of how do Jews live in exile? How are you supposed to live in exile? And even like some analogy for us, which we want to take from this, how are we supposed to live while we live in a culture that's not necessarily dominantly Christian? And one of the basic things just to glean off of this is, do you have to use explicit language all the time? And it's interesting as we dive into this book, just to have that question in the background. So you ready to get into the story? Yeah, let's tell the story a little bit. Okay. So 
it starts out in Susa, which is this capital of the Persian Empire, and it starts out introducing the king and queen of Persia. So we have King Ahasuerus and Queen Vashti. And there is this great celebration that takes half a year, followed by a seven-day feast. And during this feast, the king and queen have separate feasts going on parallel. And the king, with his drunk friends, wants to have the beautiful queen basically show herself off to them while they're drinking. And he summons the queen, the king of Persia, summons the queen. And when she's asked to come to do this and show herself off to his drunk friends, she doesn't want to do it. And this causes this huge rift of authority in the kingdom. And he talks to his wise men and they're all telling him, you cannot let the queen directly disobey a command that you give her. Then it's going to undermine all the authority all husbands have. So it turns into like this, like kind of shallow authoritarian totalitarian image of, of what this kingdom of Persia is like. And to teach her a lesson, he takes the queenship from her and punish her super severely and, and strips this power from her. And it leaves this openness for a new queen. So in the book of Esther, there's a lot of feasting, a lot of drinking. Uh, maybe it is fitting that we're recording this episode ahead of uh, the American celebration of Thanksgiving. Yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> where both of those things happen a lot. And in fact, this book is the basis for uh, a Jewish holiday, which isn't around Thanksgiving. It's in March, typically, late winter, early spring, called Purim. Purim also has a lot of feasting and a lot of drinking. <laughs> Unfortunately, Purim didn't make it over into the Christian calendar. No, we don't celebrate Purim. We should. Well, maybe we start that in our parishes, right? You know, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Purim. You canceled Lent for Purim. <laughs> yeah. Poor Purim falls at the wrong time in the Christian calendar. Maybe that's why I didn't make it. <laughs> You're a horrible pastor. <laughs> <laughs> so we have this vacuum now. Uh, the queen, unjustly, Vashti, has been kicked out. And the king sets up this kind of elaborate method for choosing a new queen. And eventually he decides the most beautiful, the most pleasing woman is this woman named Esther. Now, Esther is in fact Jewish, although nobody knows it at the time. And she becomes the replacement queen in Persia. Her Jewish name is Hadassah, uh, but she goes by Esther, kind of hiding hiding that Jewish identity. And the process she goes through this elaborate system is beautiful women from all over the empire are basically trying out to be the queen and they have to go through this year of beautification where they have oils and spices to help beautify them. And, and they're waiting before they're even worthy to be looked at by the king. And they're living together in this harem run by a eunuch who's in charge of them. This, both the story of, of queen Vashti and, Esther, as she's ra- rising up through the ranks, kind of shows not only how kind of unjust the the king is, but also this underlying sense of injustice towards women and also this lack of concern of the power that women might have. 
I'm going to just break and talk about that theme a little bit. Yeah. So Esther has become uh, an important book when discussing kind of themes of, of feminism and women uh, in the ancient world, in the Old Testament. Now, Persia, I believe, was particularly known for being unfair to women, but not uncommon in the ancient world. Women didn't necessarily have a very high status. So the book of Esther becomes an example, number one, of maybe how women are marginalized in societies, but also on the more positive side, how a woman, namely Esther, finds some kind of agency and how she becomes the most important person in this story, how she becomes the most influential person in this story, even if she has to use kind of back channels and she has to use um, her creativity, creativity and political maneuvering to exercise that agency and that authority. But she does. And you've made the point before as well that she's almost a representation of Israel in exile because Israel itself has lost its power or its agency as it's kind of enslaved or a second class within this kingdom of Persia. And as Israelites in general, they have to figure out ways to, to weave in to have agency and power. And, and she represents that. Yeah. So there's this idea that a lot of commentators on this story have brought up that um, the role of women in ancient societies is an analogy for the role of Jewish people at least in this period of exile and also throughout a lot of history where they didn't wield explicit power and so had to find other ways to find agency and to make a difference and to protect themselves. Um, and and it's, it's true of Judaism, but it's also true for any group of people who you find themselves out of power in a society. How do you kind of make your way around? How do you get things done and how the, the kingdom of God still works in Christianity. it's not necessarily the same oppressed groups, but there's a sensation of if you have physical power, if it's obvious that you have agency and, and you're able to control things, you might inversely be lacking in spiritual power. A lot of things in the Christian life are get rid of, material strength. Uh, we have these great saints that have sold everything they had and lived in poverty because there's a sensation of if I forfeit my material power, I will grow in spiritual power. Yeah. As we continue in the story, Esther wins this contest and, and becomes the queen. As she's queen, she has this close relationship with her cousin, Mordecai. Mordecai is people know that he's Jewish and he's been raising Esther. So not only is Esther a woman and has, has that as like an obvious lack of power, she's also an orphan and she's also a Jew in exile. So she like seemingly shouldn't have any power and should be a non-threat to everybody. Mordecai has been raising her and they're really tight. And one of the things that happens early on is Mordecai discovers this assassination plot of the king of Persia. Two of his doormen are plotting to assassinate him, and and Mordecai discovers it, tells Queen Esther, and Esther protects the king of Persia by relaying this. And they write it down in the, the chronicles or the annals of the kingdom of Persia, 
but they don't really reward Mordecai other than like a, a brief um, increase of, of the influence that he has. Yeah. So put that in the back of your mind that Mordecai does this great thing and does not really get paid back for it immediately. At least a little foreshadowing there. Hmm. I want a spoiler alert. Spoiler <laughs> well, alert. <laughs> well, a lot of twists and turns in Esther. You need to hold on to this data. So now it's time to introduce the bad guy in the story. Oh, no. Yeah. We need so, to have some theme music. <laughs> the bad guy is this uh, royal advisor named Haman. Now, Haman's not Persian. He's a Malachite, which is a callback to an earlier part of scripture where the Amalekites are uh, enemies of Israel, of King Saul. Um, so there's this guy named Haman who's basically number two. So he's like the, the prime minister or the chancellor or the vice president, whatever. Uh, Haman makes a command that every person in the empire, every other royal official has to kneel before him and kind of pledge obedience to him. Because he's representing the king and because he's just a jerk who loves himself and (laughs) just enjoying his power. So when, when Jewish people celebrate Purim, uh, they, they read through the whole story. And every time you hear the name Haman, you're supposed to boo and drown out (laughs) his name so that he's forgotten to history. Uh, We, we can't even hear his name when we're retelling the story. We want to totally forget him. Uh, And the reason is because Mordecai, refuses to bow down to Haman. And seeing this, obviously, if a narcissist makes a rule like this and you break that rule, and he's going to be pretty upset when you break that rule. You see some of the deadly sins in this too, I think. Like you already have this pride. And then when when somebody breaks this rule and is like infringing upon your pride, you have envy and wrath immediately. And his wrath is not just, I want to kill Mordecai. I want to kill Mordecai's family. I want to kill anything that's related to Mordecai. And he knows Mordecai is Jewish and assumes part of this is based on the fact that Mordecai is Jewish. So he tells the king, there is a people who is disobeying commands based off of their religion. And I would like to exterminate them so that we can continue to grow in strength and not have these challengers. And he actually tells the king he's going to donate 10,000 silver talents into the royal treasury so that this can happen. And then the king allows it to happen. So an order goes out to essentially execute every Jewish person in the Persian Empire. And this is important because it's the final time in the Old Testament when there is an attempt to eradicate the Jewish people. Not the final time in history, of course, but the final time within the Old Testament that this happens. Upon hearing this decree, Mordecai realizes how serious it is. Then he tears his clothes and he he puts on sackcloth and ashes. And because he changes his appearance like this, he was welcome in the royal court before and would have interactions with people to Esther. Uh, But now he's not allowed near the royal court because he looks like garbage. Um, but it's how he's mourning and expressing this this extreme sadness and pain. And I think this is important um, because Mordecai does not only fast and put on sackcloth himself, he asks all the Jewish people throughout the empire to do the same. It's three-day fast, no food, no drink, 
Uh, and he asked Queen Esther and her attendants to do the same. And I think this is important because we said in the beginning that this story is an example of how to live your faith kind of implicitly, how to live your faith in maybe an unfriendly environment. And one of the ways they decide to do this is by fasting. This is the real, in the Hebrew version at least, religious practice that's present. This is the most explicitly religious part of the book of Esther, this desire to fast and to do penance. And I think it's a lesson for all of us that we can't necessarily control the society around us, but we can control our own behavior through things like fasting and penance and examining our own weaknesses and our own faults and our own practices. And before we can change the culture around us, uh, we can change the way we behave through practices like this. And just the relationship between spiritual potency or strength and, and material strength. So our instinct when we start losing physical strength or, or material potency is to try to grab onto it and get, even if it's only a little bit and it's not enough to sustain us, like hold on to this material strength we know we can have. And this Jewish response is to go against that instinct and do the opposite. I'm like spiraling down. I'm losing my material strength. I'm, I'm losing my, my standing inside of this society. And instead of like scraping for whatever little slavery I can get, I'm going to actually injure my material strength even more and fast and make myself weaker and open myself up for God. Who's all powerful to, to elevate me or recreate me or do what, whatever he can do with me. That's a great, I hadn't even thought of that. So instead of grasping for the scraps, instead of trying to hold on to some semblance of power, they voluntarily give up even what little power they have. That's what fasting represents here. I never thought about that. That's a good point. Thank you. I, <laughs> I like, what are your thoughts on fasting? I, <laughs> I have both and it depends on who's asking me because if it's like someone who's super intense and feels like they're going to earn their salvation, like there are people who fast just to like make themselves feel holier and that's a huge problem or they're just really intense people and they, they are going to hurt themselves. It should always be done in conversation with somebody else and, and it should be done to, for humility, not for like directly gaining more strength through manipulation in any way. Because it is, especially in Western Christianity, kind of a lost art. Um, we have things where we like have maybe abstain from meat on on Fridays or or short term, very simple fasts. Um, but a lot of times, I think we do it just out of some kind of obedience, and we we forget the spiritual potency of it. I I always think if if somebody wants to engage in some kind of aesthetic. Um, which means like uh, giving up, right? Some kind of like extreme form of, of asceticism. Um, I recommend fasting as maybe the healthiest and and best example. Like maybe exercise a little more control on on what you eat and drink, and and kind of little by little give some of that up. I think it's a it's a real spiritual practice that can be beneficial if done correctly. And if done in conversation, like you said, and I would assume too, kind of your experience going vegetarian. And I know you skip some meals sometimes. Um, I don't eat meat on Fridays, like, like the classic Catholic tradition. I, and I skip a meal every now and then it's just like, it's good 
to just realize you're hungry and your body gets hungry sometimes. It's so easy in our culture just to never even experience being hungry at all. Yeah, because because physical hunger is a very close analogy to spiritual hunger and it can awaken things. Again, done in moderation and done in conversation, I think it's uh, kind of a, a forgotten tool sometimes. Yeah, you've had a huge diet change over the last like three years. Have, have you like been experimenting just with the spirituality of that through that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it really, it, that's for me was the, the, the locus of it, you know, kind of the, the center of, of changing dietary habits. I mean, it's healthier, but also it, it awakens a, awareness of, of spiritual things in you, at least hopefully. I don't want to, you know, maybe not all the time, but. Were you surprised like by the effect of it? No, I think that was part of my intention going in. I don't want to overstate the effect, but I do think it, it, it can be helpful. I want to get with the story. An interesting interaction is with Mordecai and Esther. Esther finds out that Mordecai is wearing sackcloth and can't come into the court anymore and ashes. And she sends him new clothes as the queen. And Mordecai is like, no, I understand what I'm doing. Um, you and I both like Mordecai a lot in that it's just like this guy who's thought through things and is a little stubborn with the actions that he's taking. I'm not bowing to this guy named Haman. I don't care. And I'm not where I'm I'm not putting on nice clothes because something big is happening right now. Stop telling me what to do. Don't tell me what to do. <laughs> <laughs> I yeah. get it. Yeah. He's a so, he's our patron saint. He really is. So uh, Mordecai kind of uh, threw a messenger because he can't go to the court, gives this knowledge to Esther. And he's like, don't think just because you're in the king's household and you're his queen that he's not going to also kill you when he finds out he's Jewish. I mean, Queen Vashti got dismissed like nothing. And he says, if you you need to approach the king. And she says, it's illegal. He hasn't summoned me for 30 days. I can't go. And he says, if you don't go. It's okay because God's going to protect his people and deliverance is going to come from somewhere else. I mean, he doesn't say the word God because we know that, but he says deliverance for the Israelites will come from somewhere else if you don't do it. Uh, so he is quoting providence there. and um, But he says probably, who knows, it was probably for this exact time that you were able to become queen. I really like that because sometimes we can trap ourselves in this savior mentality that our courageous behavior is going to change the world and, and save the world. And and God does work through us, obviously, but we also have this understanding of providence that, you know, it's, it's God's action that will save his people. And if it's through us all the better, but it doesn't have to be through us. <laughs> Savior complex. I'm, it is so true. Only yeah. I can do this. Only I can help this person. Only I can rebuild the church. <laughs> right. I mean, people yeah, probably fall into that sometimes. Especially as priests. So Haman goes to work. He's all psyched, right? He's going to eradicate the Jewish people, consolidate his power. So he has uh, gallows uh, erected outside of the palace to hang Mordecai and his family. And that's when Esther springs into action. Yeah, she illegally approaches the king and the king is actually happy to see her extends his golden scepter um, and her kind of fortitude is rewarded and says, what can I do for you? My queen, even half my kingdom I would give to you. And she says, come with me 
to a banquet and bring Haman and, and we'll feast together tomorrow. And I'll, I'll ask you my request. So Haman gets invited to this banquet. He's all pumped because he thinks it means uh, he's got the favor of the king, that all this good stuff's going to happen, that uh, he's going to really solidify his position. But that's not necessarily the way it works out. That night, the king is having trouble sleeping. And for whatever reason, he has someone read him the the chronicles of the annals of uh, his kingdom. So they're reading through and they read that Mordecai discovered this plot. So again, like this is subtle providence. Like why does the king all of a sudden feel like he should have these things read to him and all of a sudden remember that Mordecai is special right while all this conflict is happening right before the feast. And he wants to reward Mordecai. And just so happens Haman's out and about and he hears him and it says, what should I do for someone that I really love in this kingdom? And Mordecai obviously is a narcissist thinks He's talking no, about Haman. Oh, no. is Haman, Haman, yeah, and yeah, Haman, yeah. who's out and about in the courtyard, uh, the king hears him and says, "Who is that?" And he says, "Haman." He says, "Come in." What should the king do for someone he really loves? And Haman, who's a narcissist, obviously thinks the king's talking about him and gives this like great thing. You should parade him on horseback all through the kingdom and say, "This is how the horde the." king rewards the servants that he loves and like makes this like fantasy of being praised by everybody and he goes great let's do it for mordecai because he saved my life once so i I think this is another good example of of what we talked about before uh if if the book of esther was like uh, some other books in scripture and you heard at this point and then god implanted into the king uh, a memory of Mordecai and God moved the king's heart to reward Mordecai. I think you'd lose some of the sense of how things actually work and how providence actually works in history, because our experience isn't that every time God acts, kind of there's a bright light and when we see it happening in real time. Uh, in fact, usually we have to look back on events and reflect on how providence was working and where God was working. And I think the book of Esther is really good at getting us to think that way, that it doesn't explicitly say God was at work here. But when we look back at the story, we can see his footprints. We can see his providence at work implicitly, which is what our experience of God is. We would love verification. A lot of times I would love verification to know I'm doing the right thing. And it's just like, you're kind of just hanging on and latching on to the last consolation or verification you had, but you're hoping it's right. So then in the climax of the story, Esther and Haman and the king are together. And Esther reveals that Haman had been plotting to destroy the Jewish people, including Mordecai, including Queen Esther, and that the punishment that Haman had planned for the Jews should instead be delivered upon Haman and his followers. So we have this scene where Haman is just begging Queen Esther for mercy, and he even climbs up on the bed with her, and the king walks in. He says, what's this guy doing here? Why is he on the bed with, in bed with the queen? Yeah, and we see, again, like this sensation of trying to control material power that's slipping away. He's he's manipulated and orchestrated all this thing. And then once the plan starts to fall apart, his 
instinct is to grasp onto whatever he can. And it happens to be Queen Esther. And it's like when it rains, it pours and he looks even more horrible. Like he's doing something to the King's queen right in front of him. So the King enraged does what Esther asked. And instead of hanging Mordecai and his family on the gallows that Haman had erected, he has Haman and his followers executed. But it doesn't stop there. An order goes out to the entire empire that the Jewish people are now to be protected and the tables completely turn so that those who were the enemies of the Jews are themselves eradicated and the Jewish people win everywhere. And it says that as a result of this, uh, people throughout the empire become more sympathetic to Judaism. There's conversions. People begin to follow the way of the Lord. And we see this pretty violent end to the book with the enemies of the Jewish people being defeated. So that's the story in a nutshell. Um, It is this tale of a lot of things. Uh, It's this story of the Jewish people once again being protected by God's providence. It's a story of Esther and Mordecai discovering how to live, how to follow their faith in this implicit way when they're not given explicit power, when we don't hear God explicitly referenced. But nonetheless, it's a story that's been commemorated for generations during the Feast of Purim, which also has a lot of interesting traditions. So uh, people dress up at Purim. Uh, We mentioned that they retell the story. Uh, Also, interestingly, uh, during Purim, and this is something that's always been controversial, Jewish people are supposed to get so drunk that they don't know the difference between the phrase cursed be Haman and blessed be Mordecai. So uh, a lot of interesting things uh, in that celebration, which as we said, takes place usually sometime in March. So that's the story of Esther. Thanks. Father Alex. It was fun to talk about that. Yeah. It's, it's a really uh, interesting tale. Kind of just do whatever you want. Join a foreign court, (laughs) join a foreign court, celebrate Esther and get so drunk. You get, you don't, you can't understand words. I don't know if, if do whatever you want is the best takeaway, but uh, <laughs> certainly there's some some interesting takeaways from this book and uh, our understanding of how God works in history and how we're supposed to live, maybe even in the present day. Just a reminder that our theme song for Wadi Cherith is provided by Holly Serio, Holly Serio Music. So you can find her on I'm guessing is iTunes still a thing? Apple yeah. Music. It's Apple Thank Music now. It's not iTunes. Apple anymore. Music. Apple Music. Anywhere music is found on the internet, I'm sure we'll put a link to her. YouTube, something. <laughs> Whatever. Yeah, we'll put a link to her in uh, the show notes. But thank you for joining us. It's been an interesting discussion of this maybe sometimes overlooked book in our tradition. Thank you and see you next time. See you next time.